turn to Malachi, if you would, this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask the kids, like I sort of traditionally do, a question this morning. And it's mainly for the little, little, little ones. How many of you guys like dot-to-dot drawings, or to do dot-to-dots? There's some of you here, yeah, you like doing dot-to-dots. Okay. And I don't have a dot-to-dot for you. You do. They're like coming out of their seats. I don't, nothing, nothing for you to do up here this morning. I'm just asking if you like dot-to-dots. Now, some dot-to-dots are fairly easy just looking at it, be easy to tell what it is. Okay, so I'm going to bring one up right here. Okay, okay what is that? Uh, it's, it's an alligator, right? Okay, or a crocodile. I, I can't ever tell those two apart. But anyway, that's something like an alligator or a crocodile. And you can tell that. You don't even have to connect the dots for that. For me, what's even fun about a dot-to-dot that looks like that? I mean, you already know it's an alligator. There's no anticipation. I mean, you just, oh, okay. Now, some of them are a little bit harder, like this one here. You can kind of squint your eyes and see if you can figure out what it is. Okay, all the adults are answering. This is for the kids, but y'all can do it too. All right, it's a seahorse, right? You can see the seahorse. There's only a little bitty, little bitty part there that's actually completed for you right there at the, at the very top, right? Now, some dot-to-dots are, are much more difficult, like this one. And you can't even see the numbers on this, I think, because our screen sort of fades out. But each one of those dots has a number. And uh, honestly, I didn't take the time to do this one. <laughs> I just didn't want to do it. It says that it's farm animals. So you have to trust me, that's farm animals, okay? And that dot-to-dot's much harder to, to see. Now, I use this for illustration purposes because when we think about the minor prophets, I think one of the things we have to understand is the way God gave us his word, the way God revealed things and gave us the, the revelation of his son, Jesus, was through progressive revelation, through unfolding revelation that we have in scripture. And there were like new dots put on the page every time. New dots, new dots, new dots, new dots. And uh, the people would, would see these dots and they would look forward to, in faith, how God was going to put it all together and what was going to see. It was always put together in the shape of the cross. It was all, always pointing to the cross. And, the, and these minor prophets are part of these dots. And so like we read earlier from First Peter, how these prophets, they were searching, inquiring, okay, when's all this going to happen? How is it going to happen? What are the details here? And all God was giving them was the dots. But it was enough for them to look forward in faith to the coming Messiah, to the one who would be the propitiation for their sins. So they looked forward in faith. And, and we have the luxury of looking back and see how all the dots are connected in Jesus. So why do we go to the trouble of looking back at these minor prophets and looking at the details from these passages of scripture because every dot God gave us is important and we need to understand that it's important and we can understand the picture better when we go back and see how God spoke of it before Christ even came. Now this morning we're going to be in Malachi and let me in advance tell you if you can't tell from your notes already This is going to be a two-parter, guys. Malachi is broken into two parts. So I've really blown it. Uh, Twelve, we had had twelve overview sermons. Matter of fact, you might even say, is this even an overview sermon now since you've got to break it into two parts? We had twelve overview sermons over twelve minor prophets during twelve weeks of summer. And here I go, turning this series into thirteen. I mean, even our picture here doesn't work anymore. I don't know if you noticed our minor league baseball team. It had twelve team members on it. That's right. You see, I think about these things. You know, this guy right here. The apathetic one, that's Jonah, okay? All right? 
Those, that's the minor prophets. And now I've blown it having 13 sermons for our minor prophets. Oh, well, I have to ask the marketing department to forgive me. And since that's me, we're okay. So turn to Malachi. Turn to Malachi, a little bit about Malachi as you're, as you're finding it. Malachi's name means my messenger. Matter of fact, many scholars believe it wasn't even his name, the person who wrote this, but that was simply the title, my messenger. It was written around 450 B.C., which is roughly 70 years after our last two minor prophets that we looked at. So this is the middle of the 5th century B.C., and if you're wondering, kids, if you're wondering why these dates seem to be counting down, it's because B.C. counts down. So we started way back in the 800s when we started the minor prophets, and here we are in the 400s. I put these together chronologically so we can kind of get an overview of the history of God's people in the process. This is the last of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. This is the last word of God from the Old Testament. Now in the Hebrew canon, in the, in the Jewish canon of the Old Testament, Malachi is not at the very end. It's not at the last of the order of the books. But every, every Jewish believer will tell you that uh, Malachi was the last word of God from the Old Testament. And Jews who reject uh, the Messiah who still believe that the Old Testament is the word of God, will also say that Malachi was the last word that God gave to his people. And so Malachi is the very last word of God, and it would be his last word in the Old Testament until about 400 years later when an angel named Gabriel appears to a priest named Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and says these words. He says, speaking about the son that this priest is going to have named John the Baptist, he says, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And that's a direct quote from Malachi. So it's as if God reappears 400 years later and says, remember the last thing I said to you? I'm about to speak to you a final word. Matter of fact, it's going to be the word made flesh. And so what we have here as we close out the minor prophets, we're actually sort of looking at the book that closes out the whole Old Testament. We are, we are looking at that. Now Malachi consists of a very short introduction and six disputes or disputations where God will say something about the people and they'll respond and say, but, or he'll, he'll anticipate their response and say, but you say, and then he for them, says what they're thinking, and then goes on to argue with them. So there's these little arguments that go on throughout the book of Malachi, and there's six of them. Uh, it's a very relevant book for our day. It speaks on issues such as church leadership, of, on worship, on marriage, divorce, social justice, how to handle material possessions, and more. But this morning, I'm not going to be able to get past halfway through the book, um, mainly because when I settled in and got looking at the very beginning of this book, it has so much relevance, I believe, for the condition of the church in America today that I just had to sit there for a while. I'm going to have to sit here and really let us stew on the doctrine that's being taught in these first verses, and then everything else will flow out of that. So we're going to read the first five verses here, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 5. We're going to read that, and then we'll jump into walking through this book. And like I said, we're only going to get halfway through it today. So please stand if you would, Malachi chapter 1. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Malachi 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob 
But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to dig into this passage of Scripture, Lord, I just pray that you would grant me the grace to um, speak what you want me to speak. There's so many different directions we could go with the book of Malachi. So God, I trust, Lord, that what you've laid upon my heart this week after prayer and study is where you want us to go. But Father, that does not mean that I am not capable of great error. And so God, prevent me from mistakes. Uh, Use uh, me to speak your word accurately, Father. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us in here as we listen to hear your word accurately because our ears uh, cannot do that apart from your Spirit's gracious work. And so God, we ask that. We pray now that you be with this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. As I said, the structure of this book consists of six disputations where God will say something about his people and then anticipating their response, God says, but you say, and so each one of those sections is marked by that comment, but you say, now obviously this is a rhetorical device that that God is using through Malachi Uh, to anticipate the response of his people so to expose what's really in their heart. Paul uses the same rhetorical method in Romans in various places where he assumes the question that's on his listeners' uh, minds. And that's what Malachi is doing here. And these six disputes are arranged kind of like some of the other minor prophets we looked at in a chiasmic fashion. Okay, so... Kind of like last week, we'll see that the the first disputation relates to the sixth, the second relates to the fifth, and the third relates to the fourth. Now, the very first disputation, though, is what drives all of the rest. I'm going to try to draw the parallels, and you can see how they're connected. But we're just going to walk through them in order. But like like I said this morning, we're actually going to only get through the first two disputes that are going on here. Now, like I said, this first dispute sort of drives the whole book and everything else flows out of it. And God is using these disputes to expose the sinful attitudes of his people. So it's this first sin that God mentions here at the very beginning where, as you've read, which you just read a minute ago, they're questioning God's love for them. It's that very first sin that leads to all the other sins that are mentioned in the book. So here's the first thing I want us to to see this morning. And it's simply this. When God's people begin to question his faithfulness and love toward them, they slowly begin to drift away from him. And the rest of the book deals with that drift. Drifting away from him in worship. Drifting away from him in relationships. Drifting away from him in the way they handle their possessions. It's all here in Malachi. And and really what was on my heart is, as I was thinking about this passage, I I couldn't help but think of how far the church has drifted in our day and age. And how relevant Malachi is because God brings them to this very first point here and and basically says all your drifting is because of this right here, this very first thing. So the very first thing I I want us to see here in verse 2 is where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how 
Have you loved us? The very first thing that the people are disputing with God about is whether or not he actually loves them. Whether or not he actually cares. And this is not an uncommon dispute that we often hear from people today, even within the church. People usually begin to talk about God in that sort of way, wondering whether or not he's there, whether he cares, whether he really loves them, which is a question that no true believer should have on his tongue. But people begin to ask those questions when they're frustrated or anxious or fearful. Perhaps all those things are the case here with the people of Judah. You see, despite God's promise of restoration to Judah and to Israel, um, at this time, Judah was only this little tiny landlocked postage stamp size of a province in the middle of Palestine. They were nothing like their former glory. Jerusalem was a half-built city with half-built walls. And that little temple that they had rebuilt hardly resembled the former temple in its size and glory. And then beyond all that, God had promised to be with his people and to be present with them. Yet they rebuilt the temple and the Lord's glory didn't reappear like it had in the past. Where was the promised glory? And then Israel's enemies still surrounded her and oppressed her. Where was God's promised victory? And within God's people there was still rampant wickedness, sin, And where was this deliverance from sin that they they had been promised by the other prophets? I don't think it's hard for us to see how frustration and disappointment and disillusionment could have easily set in on God's people. There was probably some anger toward God. And without question, there was doubt. Did God really love them? Perhaps you're there this morning asking those type of questions. Perhaps the frustrations and disappointments of your life have turned your eyes inward instead of heavenward perhaps you think what 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 you need to get out of that funk to get out of this 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 depressed and disillusioned state that you find yourself in well perhaps what you think you need is some self-esteem building or maybe just a, a a good hearty challenge to dig down deep and find your inner hero some some self-help sermon would be good this morning so you're coming hoping i hope steve has something to really show me that i am So much better than I think I am. I'm sorry to disappoint you. No. What do the Israelites need? How does God settle their restless hearts? He simply reminds them of who he is. He simply says, I am the sovereign God of the universe. Friends, when life has you down in the dumps, you don't need more of you. You need more of God. Specifically here... God reminds them of his sovereign goodness in election. He reminds them of his sovereign goodness in election. Look at what the passage says. But you say, how have you loved us? So what's God's response? Oh, come on. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He says, nope. Let me tell you how I'm going to encourage you. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Doesn't that seem like strange medicine? The way to encourage God's people is to remind them of his own sovereign freedom to elect whom he wishes to elect? Some of you are already wanting to walk out of this room. Because that's the message this morning. That God has for us the same message he had for Malachi's day when he was preaching to Judah. Jacob here obviously is Israel. Esau is the nation of Edom. Jacob, though he was the younger brother, if you'll remember the story, was the one that God chose to covenant with. 
and from whom the Messiah would come. Esau, on the other hand, was rejected by God. He was, he was hated. He was, that, that word hated means to be rejected, to be turned away. So God chose one brother over another brother, and it wasn't based upon any good or bad that they had done. Matter of fact, Jacob was a snake, if you'll remember. Yet God chose Jacob over Esau. God is reminding them here of his sovereign electing freedom, and that should cause them to feel very loved. Friends, if, you, if we understand biblically and rightly the doctrine of election we will find that it's one of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture. Now, at first, the doctrine may seem to leave a bitter taste in your mouth. But let me say this. If you will endure the bitter taste it leaves in your sinful mouth and swallow this doctrine as it is prescribed in Scripture, then you will find that it is indeed a glorious medicine to the troubled soul. It is only bitter because our taste buds are off. It is only bitter because our taste buds are inward focused. And too often, people who should know better spit it out before they even think about swallowing it. In reality, it's a sweet doctrine. And when our taste palate is set aright, set in line with God's word, there is no sweeter or more satisfying doctrine in all of Scripture than the doctrine of God's electing grace. Now, we all admit there's some great mystery here in how God chooses to operate the universe. Wouldn't you expect that from an infinite being revealing to finite beings how he does things? Of course. So there is some mystery here. As one person put it, election is a family secret recognized only from those on the inside. We step in by an act of the will through a gateway placarded with the words, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And that's our human responsibility. And when we enter, we look back and see the caption on the inside of the door that says, Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. It's God's sovereignty. Believer, if you are a true believer here this morning, you are so not because of any work or any willing on your part, but because God chose you to be His, period. Get in the sermon right there. Not going to. He chose you to choose Him. If we will see that, we will see amazing love and find amazing comfort. Now, why is that so comforting? Because if my salvation, friends, is about me and what I did to merit God's favor or about me and how I somehow, in the midst of my depravity, found a way to chose God, then I have reason to doubt. Because the will of man is very flimsy ground. But if my salvation is about God and what he did before the foundation of the world to foreknow me, predestine me, call me, awaken my dead heart, give me faith so I might choose him, not based on any good or bad that I have done, and it's all about his will, then I have great reason for hope for the sovereign will and decree of God is indeed very firm ground. The will of man is flimsy ground. The will of God, rock solid. Which one do you want to stand on? You must see that all men are deserving of hell. We must see that. All men are deserving of hell. And apart from God's gracious intervention, all men are destined for a hell that they've earned and they want. But God, in extravagant love and mercy, has chosen many, snatched them off the broad highway to hell, and has made them his children, thus unconditionally pouring out special divine love upon them. Why do our hearts rebel against such clearly taught truth? 
because we want to squeeze God into our thinking instead of allowing our minds to be transformed by his thinking. God wants us, just as he wanted those who were listening to Malachi, to see his divine freedom in election and for that to give us great comfort. What's more is that Genesis 25, 23 teaches us that God chose Jacob, as I've already mentioned, unconditionally. For while they were still in the womb, it says that God said that the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So while they're still in the womb, God's already saying, I'm choosing Jacob. Now, lest you have an issue with me quoting this passage to defend unconditional election, the unconditional nature of God's election, let me direct you to someone much more qualified than myself in regards to the doctrine of election. His name, perhaps you've heard of him, Paul of Tarsus. Romans 9, verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and hadn't done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau, I hate it. So Paul connects the passage I referred to in Genesis just a minute ago and the passage we've just read in Malachi together to defend unconditional election. Paul did that, not me. So if you're mad at Steve this morning, be mad at Paul. Now naturally, this leaves a bitter taste in our mouth. Why? Because we, like our mother and father, Adam and Eve, we want to be God. We want God to stoop to our level of what we think is just instead of allowing him to bring us up to his level. We must see that God would be fully just and righteous to send every human being to hell, yet he doesn't, he saves many. And yet we have the gall to bristle at his love and call him unfair. Much like the disputation style of Malachi, Paul anticipates the response of his hearers to his, what he just taught them about unconditional election in Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By the way, if Paul's not teaching unconditional election, that question makes no sense. Why would they be asking? And Paul would just answer, well, no, no, you misunderstood me. He doesn't. Look what he says. By no means. By no means. God isn't unjust. Verse 15, what's he going to ground that in? So he's got to go to a Bible verse now. Let me tell you why God's not unjust. What am I going to ground this in? What am I going to ground unconditional election in scripturally? Paul doesn't go through some philosophical argument. He says, I'll just tell you why. Verse 15 of Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's his argument. We, we write books, 500-page books to defend the doctrine of election. Paul does it in two sentences. Simply refers back to Genesis thirty-three nineteen. What am I going to base election on? God is free. He's not bound by anything. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. It's his choice. Did you get that? It depends not on human will or exertion, according to Paul, but it depends on God. Not on human will. That's an act of faith or exertion. That's good works. He chooses based upon his will and his action. Now, we could go a lot deeper into this, but I want to focus on what Paul said here from Exodus 33, 19. 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a passage, if you know it well. This is a passage where God has chosen to reveal his glory and his name to Moses. Moses is asked to see God's glory. So God says, okay, you can't see all my glory because you're going to get wiped out if that happens. But he's going to show his glory, his goodness to Moses and reveal his name, his character. And in connection with that revelation of his name. And remember, when someone's name is revealed, that's talking about their character, their person, who they are. In connection with the revelation of his name, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God's sovereign freedom is an essential part of his character. God's sovereign freedom is an essential part of what makes him God. For God to depend on human decision or human action is to pull him off of his throne. Part of what it means to be Yahweh, I am who I am, the self-existent one, is that he's absolutely free. The only true free being in the universe is God. So this this excludes a God who looks down the corridor of time and reacts to what he sees man doing. That's not a free God. God is not a reactive God. He is a fully proactive God, the only truly proactive being in the universe. He is the great initiator. Now, some will argue that this phrase here, Jacob, I love, Esau, I hate it, has nothing to do with individuals, but it's talking about God's choice of one nation above another nation. In other words, God did not choose Jacob, the individual, over Esau, but he chose Israel over Edom. And certainly nations are in view here because he goes on to talk about what God has done to the nation of Edom. But friends... This interpretation fails to account for the fact that Jacob and Esau were indeed individuals. And that God did indeed choose Jacob over Esau. In fact, for God's election of Israel to be over Edom, and for that to make any sense at all, one must presuppose his election of Jacob as an individual and Esau as an individual. So saying this is about nations doesn't get God off the hook at all. One who says that this passage simply refers to national election cannot, without contradiction, deny individual election. It is precisely because God has chosen Jacob the individual that the nation that came from him, Israel, was preferred over Edom. Now we could say a whole lot more, but for today's context, let us see that when God wants to get his depressed people pumped up, he tells them about his nature. That he is an absolutely sovereign and free God. Friends, if you will submit to God's word in regards to what he says about himself, including what he says about his electing freedom. Friends, if you'll submit to what God's word says here, you will find a deep joy that defies any words. I promise you. I never came into a deeper experience of God's joy and satisfaction before the day I really embraced God's sovereign freedom and election. And ever since that day, it has been so sweet. It is so sweet. Many of you give me testimonies like that. I grew up all my life fighting this or not believing this. And finally, God got a hold of my heart and opened my eyes to it. And he talked about how just the floodgates opened. Friends, that's the case here. Now to help help us see that God's love does indeed, that God's helping us focus on his electing love does indeed uh, give us the strength 
to endure like we could never have on our own, I want to go to Paul again. Romans 8, verse 28. There's a famous passage of Scripture. Now, here's the deal, though. A lot of people like to pick certain verses out of Romans 8, but don't like to look at the whole chunk of it. We like to say, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we detach it from his discussion of foreknowledge and predestination and everything else. So how does God pump up people who are going through difficulties? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he is also glorified. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? My friends, how does Paul encourage the church? He says, I want to remind you that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Focus on his electing love and it will carry you through. This doctrine is sweet, gloriously sweet. There's great comfort in resting in the sovereign freedom of God, knowing that he loves me because he chose me to be his based solely upon his sovereign grace. God had already told the Israelites this. He told them this way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Now to drive home the point here in Malachi, God reminds them that Obadiah's prophecies about the destruction of Esau, the nation of Edom, had come true. Verse 3 goes on and says, I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. You see, unlike God's people, Esau would not be able to rebuild their ruined cities. Esau would cease to be a people. When our eyes are open to the doctrine of God's election, we also need to see that his glory is manifested even outside of the people of God. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This again ties in perfectly with Paul's Romans 9 argument. Look at how Romans continues. Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's freedom, his absolute freedom is a glorious thing, and it makes his glory known. How have missions 
been diminished by those who reject the doctrine of election. I'm so saddened by the state of much of the missions in our world today because it's based upon man-centered felt needs instead of going into nations with the gospel, knowing that God has chosen some from every language, people, nation on the earth. And therefore, our task is guaranteed to be successful because he's the one at work. We know that on all places of this earth, God has chosen some. So we go, knowing that our missionary effort depends not on our will or our exertion, not on our cunning evangelism, not on our missionary strategies, not on the Jesus film, not on contextualization, not on anything that man can devise, but on God. Do we use all these other things? Yes, but we don't put our hope in them. We put our hope in God alone that by his sovereign decree, he will draw people to himself. God's glory among the nations is another major theme of this great little book of Malachi. I quickly discovered, read Malachi many times before, but when you study these books, you begin to see even more things. Um, I discovered that you could probably preach like a 12-week sermon series just on Malachi. But for now, let us see that Malachi starts by addressing the people's faulty view of God and God's character. They were indeed questioning his faithfulness and his love toward them. So it should be no surprise that they begin to drift away. And the first drift we see is a drift toward unfaithful worship. Unfaithful worship. Right worship, or just the topic of worship, is another major theme in Malachi. And worship in the Old Covenant was led by the priests. So God, now in the second dispute here, so we're going into the second dispute... He confronts those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of his people, the priests. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise my name. They despised God in worship. How? By not honoring and fearing him. That thread also, the honoring and fearing of God, runs throughout the rest of this book. They do not honor God as Father, nor do they fear Him as Master. And to not honor Him and to not fear Him is to despise, according to Malachi, who He is. It's to despise His name. Do you see how this flows with the first dispute? This is directly related to how they understood God's nature, who He was. Friends, if you don't know who God is... You don't embrace him for who he says he is, sovereign and free. You will not properly honor and fear him on the earth. And thus you will not worship him rightly. When I was in high school, um, I had a friend who was really good at riding BMX bikes. Remember the BMX bikes and do all the little loops and everything? And he was really good, could do all these tricks. What was really popular when I was in high school to, to Buy one of those BMX bikes and be cool like the other cool BMXers. My friend who was really good at it had a word for the rest of us. Yes, us. Posers. We didn't know what we were doing. We just liked the bikes. We liked the attention. The church is filled with posers. We like church. 
We like a God who can do something for us. Whoa! Sovereign election? No. God wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth. Don't be a poser worshiper. Either worship him for who he is or stop altogether. Because if you don't, you'll find yourself in the type of worship that the Judahites were finding themselves in. A worship that did not honor him or fear him. And you might actually find yourself in a worship that actually despises him. How many people are there in our churches today that despise the doctrine I just preached? They despise it. They don't just disagree with it. I'm I'm okay with you disagreeing with it. Let's work through the scriptures. But that's not what I find. When I talk to people about these things, they despise it. And you know what scares the tar out of me? They're not despising me. They're despising the God of the universe. There are many who despise the name of God by the way they worship him. And that, my friends, is a frightening thing. The line between disagreement and despising can be very thin indeed. So if you find yourself at odds with the doctrine of the election this morning, I beg you to search the scriptures and ground your position totally on the word. If you can do that in good conscience, then you are not despising the word of God. You're not despising God. We're disagreeing. Find the scriptures and let's disagree. But if you just don't like it because it doesn't satisfy your sense of puny human justice, then shut up because you're not despising me. You're despising the word of God. Period. Despise me. Disagree with me. Don't disagree with him. So let's have this discussion. Get your Bible out, though. I will not have this discussion with you with a closed Bible. Not a bit. But you say, verse 6, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame and sick, is that not evil? And then later on in verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has made, who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Leviticus 22 is clearly laid out for God's people what type of sacrificial animals they were to bring to the Lord. Verse 18 of Leviticus 22. Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, with any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheeps or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Now why? Why did God have this, these strict requirements? 
Well, first of all here, that some of these offerings were food offerings. So it just makes practical sense. You're not going to offer a diseased animal and then eat it. But it's much more than just practical reasons here. You see, God wanted his people to give him his best, their best, to demonstrate his worth. They were to give their best to demonstrate his worth. That's what Malachi goes on to say in verse 8. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now you entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? I think that's a great question. Let's say we were to have the president or uh, some dignitary, some sports hero, come over to your house. How would you treat him? If you treated them the way you treat God, would they come back? If you neglect them the way you neglect God every day of the week, would they come back? I'm not going back to the Doyle house. I showed up on Sunday and then just left me there all week. Didn't do anything. Had to fend for myself. My friends, God's saying you wouldn't offer a governor these type of sacrifices. Why do you do it to God? God is so much more glorious than any earthly VIP we could imagine. Verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Friends, our worship should be such that the nations honor and fear God, that those on the outside looking in honor and fear God. I'm afraid much of what is called worship today, just like our doctrinal misunderstandings, much of what we call worship today kills missions. There was an article I read a while back. I wish I could have found it because I hate quoting an article or referring to an article without being able to give you specifically where it's at. But there was an article where this lady went around and she visited different churches in America and kept notes and wrote about what they did and and all this stuff. And her conclusion about a lot of the churches in America is that she could get the same thing going to self-help seminars. That was a, she's a non-believer. That was her conclusion. Do you see how offering God polluted worship kills missions? Why do I want that? I can go listen to this guy over here and he won't even make me feel guilty. Do people come here to honor and fear God? Do people see us honoring and fearing God? Do they see it in our music? Do they hear it in our prayers? Do they see it on our faces? Do they witness it as we preach the word? Friends, I don't preach on the doctrine of election because it's fun. Just a clue. I don't preach on the doctrine of election because it's a blast. You know what? I think I'll just get up there and just go off on election this morning. That's going to be so much fun. And then we'll have a fellowship meal afterwards and people can grill me. Can't wait. No, I preach it because it's here and I fear God more than I fear you guys. I wish I feared God more than I fear you guys most of the time. But I'm so weak. And you guys need to fear God more than you fear everyone around you. But there's more to God's requirement of unblemished sacrifices than just doing it simply because he's worthy of it. He certainly is. The main reason they would offer unblemished sacrifices is that they were pointing to a truly unblemished sacrifice. The sacrifice God would provide. The sacrifice of Jesus who was the lamb, who is the lamb, spotless, perfect, and without blemish. Hebrews 9, 13 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you hear that? To serve the living God. When you've been cleaned by the blood of the Lamb, you don't clean to, you're not clean to sit. You're clean to serve. The requirement for the unblemished sacrifices should have changed the way they worship. They should have seen what it was pointing to. And so too it should change our worship. Our worship should be holy and Christ-centered. When our worship becomes man-centered, it's just like their polluted worship. They had plenty of reasons. I'm sure they had good excuses. You know what? If I give you the best of my herds, that's going to affect me financially. And God, I know you love me so much that you don't want me to be affected financially. So you'll understand if I just give you this three-legged lamb. Don't we come up with the same excuses? Well, God will understand. God will understand if we just do it this way, do it that way. Plus, we've got to attract people, right? The requirement for unblemished sacrifices should change the way we worship. It should focus our worship solely on Christ, who is the only unblemished sacrifice. 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So why does he require holy worship? Because he's a holy God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, worship that is centered on Christ is a worship that drives us away from the things of the world. Friends, we need to see how this first dispute is connected to the second dispute. Only those who fear God and worship Him for who He is are willing to bring Him pure sacrifices. The Judahites, like so many today, were dishonoring God's person and they were dishonoring God's promise. Their worship was dishonoring to Christ. They were practicing man-centered worship built upon what they wanted or maybe even what they needed and not based upon who God is and what God requires. Like I said, I'm sure they explained it away. What is the source of man-centered worship? Is it not that we don't honor and fear God? Isn't that basically the source right there in Malachi? You don't honor and fear God. Isn't that the source of man-centered worship? We fear man instead, so we cater our worship to man. One person famously said that he wants his church to be a place where unbelievers love to worship God. Friends, unbelievers can't worship God by very nature of who they are. An unbeliever cannot worship God. So what does the unbeliever need? He needs to be pointed to the shed blood of Christ. 
And only when he's been cleansed by the blood will he become a worshiper of God. So how foolish is it to say we're going to make our church a place where unbelievers feel like they can worship God. We are, in other words, saying we want this to be a place where unbelievers can lie to themselves. So let's make our house a house of deceit. Instead of being truthful, unbeliever, you cannot worship God until you've been saved. It'd be like um, trying, to, trying to cater our worship to the man-centered felt needs of our culture would be like taking someone to a, a, a jazz concert because you love jazz. But you know what? Your friend hates jazz that you're taking to the concert. He hates jazz. Can't stand jazz. But you know what? You want him to like this concert, so you go up to the jazz leader of the band and say, hey, listen, I want you to play a different style of music today. No jazz. Just rock, man. Just rock it out. My friend, he loves rock, so you rock it out. Avoid the jazz. Maybe a little jazz here or there, but just don't make it obvious. So the friend comes. He likes the concert. Wow, I like it. They, those guys rock. And I'd heard that they were jazz. And you're like, oh, no, no, yeah, they may jazz a little bit, but they're rock. And you keep bringing them back. But one time when he comes back, the jazz leaders had enough of it. I don't like rock. I just want to play jazz. That's who I am. And the band goes off and plays some beautiful jazz music. And your friend says, what is this? I can't stand this. Bringing an unbeliever to worship, bring unbelievers to worship. But guess what? They're going to hate it until they're converted. They are. And we want to be friendly and kind and gentle and loving to every person that walks into this place. We want them to feel welcome. But we're going to preach the word. And the word is like the wrong kind of music to the unbeliever. So we pray that God opens their heart through his sovereign grace. You see the problem when you don't believe that God's sovereign over the conversion of people? You try to hide the jazz. Because we think it's about us. I, I got to convince them that God's cool. It's all about us trying to convince people to believe in God. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm just going to preach about God and let him do the work. He has better return rate with his work than we do anyway. His is 100%. God's name will not be shamed. He will not allow his name to be shamed. Verse 11. From the rising of the sun... To its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is a preview of the day when God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth. But it had not yet come in Malachi's day. For us, it's here, yet it's still coming as well. In Malachi's day, verse 12, it says, but you profane it. You profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. 
But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of God. Worship had become a burden for them. Friends, is worship a burden for you? Do you say, what weariness is this when you get up on Sunday mornings? What weariness this is. It's church again. That's a sign of some problems. Worship shouldn't be a burden for us. Matter of fact, our whole life should be worship. If you don't believe in and embrace the God of chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, then you will then worship will be wearisome to you. And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings, friends. We are to worship with our lives, according to Romans 12. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So if living for God is wearisome to us, we need to do some serious self-examination and ask God to show us his name. Help us to see more of your glory, God. Because in our own reservoir, we don't have enough strength, and it becomes wearisome to us. So we need to be filled with God's glory. But always leading the way in bad worship, friends, is bad, are bad shepherds. In Judah's case, it was the priest, chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold... I will rebuke your offering and spread dung, on your, on, spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. This is a reference to Exodus 29, 14. When, when the sacrifices were offered and the skin was taken and the dung was taken, it was taken outside the camp. And what God is saying is, I'm taking your worship with it. Outside the camp. The people had dishonored God by bringing blemished sacrifices. The priests had dishonored God by accepting them. So too today, those who claim to be people of God dishonor God with unacceptable worship built around what we want instead of what God deserves. And the shepherds of God's people dishonor God by giving in to their demands. And so these people had broken their covenant with God. You shall know, these priests... You shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I give them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This is referring to the covenant God made with the tribe of Levi in Numbers 25. You remember the story that the Israelites had fallen into sin with the Moabite women. And Phinehas, one of the, one of the priests, goes and takes a spear with zeal for the Lord, and he, he kills one of the Israelites who was sinning. And the Moabite woman he was sinning with. It's a horrible story. It leaves you, you feeling just, your gut just thinking, oh my goodness, how, how horrible, how violent. But God blessed it. Because God was happy that for Phinehas that God's honor was more important than men, than the, than the fear of man. The fear of God was more important to Phinehas, the zeal for God. The point is that Phinehas put God's honor above man's. But priests here were doing the opposite. Oh, how we need shepherds who fear God more than people. How fearful I am for myself in that regard. How fearful I am for pastors who put the will of man above the will of God. Here's what he says, referring back to Phinehas, referring to how he acted. Verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away, turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Do you hear that echoed in 
the epistles, the pastoral epistles? What are God's people, what are God's shepherds supposed to be like? They're supposed to be those who have God's instruction on their mouth. They are to walk in peace and uprightness. They are to turn people from sin. The lips of the priest, the lips of God's shepherds should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. Friends, if you want true worship, friends, you will hold your shepherds accountable to that. You will hold your shepherds accountable to the pastoral epistles. But I'm afraid that many of the shepherds of our day, according to verse 8, have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble in your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Friends, I've already gone over with the time we have this morning. And you can see why I couldn't finish the book. I've still got half the sermon here. So it's kind of an abrupt ending here. I didn't decide to divide this in half until this morning. But let me just say this. Unfaithful worship flows out of a faulty view of God's love for us. And so do unfaithful relationships. We'll talk about that next week. Unfaithful use of our possessions. But for now, let us be people who worship in spirit and in truth. Let each of us look to Christ alone. Let us worship him for who he is. We don't come and worship Christ as some sort of good example, some sort of moral leader, some sort of person who can fix our life. We worship him as the sacrificed, unblemished Lamb of God. We sacrifice to him. We we worship him with sacrifices of praise because according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, he chose freely to crush his own son on our behalf. Does that not make you feel his love? His own sovereign freedom, he chose to crush his own son. Read it in Acts 2, 23. Read it in Acts 4, 28. Read it in Isaiah. He chose freely to crush Jesus to save his children. Friends, that drives you to good worship. See, I'm afraid in our culture today, in evangelical America, we don't like some of these things. And we've gone to the dot to dot, and we've begun to erase dots like Malachi 1. Ooh, that dot's hard to swallow and that dot's hard to swallow pretty soon you have a picture of a god of our own making and not the god of the universe and what people find themselves worshiping is an idol don't erase the dots i'm not saying that when you begin to connect them it isn't hard but submit to god's word Submit to his word and see what he will do in your heart and how much more true and lovely and pleasing worship will become in your life. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning I just ask for your grace and your mercy to be upon us because I know that in a room like this, after a message like this, there are some who are not happy. Thank goodness you didn't die for our happiness. Jesus, don't let us diminish who you are. Don't let us diminish what you've done. God, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I know that it's one thing to get up here and preach like this. It's another thing to live. Romans 12. And Lord, I know that I don't worship you with my life the way I should. But that's because I'm not asking what Moses asked. God, show me more. Show me more. Show me more of your glory. And worship becomes wearisome to me. Oh God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive all of us of our sin. Oh God, when you do show us more of your glory and you say things like, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And you say things like you said through the Apostle Paul, I will harden whom I harden. God, make our knees buckle and worship you for that. Because we want to run the other direction. So God, I pray in this, this morning in this room here that you would soften hard hearts, including mine, Cause us to submit to your word. God, if there be any error in anything I said today, strike it down. Simple as that. I'm not on a hobby horse. I just want to represent you. Rightly. But if there be any truth in what was said today, let it go forth like a wind. Blow away our unbelief. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts, even in this time of fellowship now that we're about to go down to. May you be glorified in our conversations. May whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. So Spirit, Holy Spirit, we beg you, help us to glorify God. Help us to glorify the Father. Because a lot of times when I eat, I just think about me. Most times. So God, we ask your forgiveness. We ask for your grace. We ask you to be with our time of fellowship, with our meal. And now we close this time with some singing to you, Lord. We want you to be magnified. We want to sing about your great love for us. Help us, help us to think about, as we sing this song, Lord, help us to think about the very first words that you spoke to the people through Malachi. Namely, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Help us to think about that as we sing about the deep love you have for us. Because I think it'll be so much deeper if we understand who you are. So God, we ask this in the precious name of our unblemished, perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Amen.